Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Last week, we read Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. I love Bell Hooks for so many reasons. She is so thorough and meticulous in her thinking. She explores all sides of every issue. And also, she's always really grounded both in speaking truth and also in preserving and maintaining love toward human beings. And she has a a manner that's accessible to everyone, whether you have a PhD from an Ivy League or you had to drop out of school at a young age to earn money for your family. She's just a true humanist. And this week's author is in the same vein. It's Roxanne Gay, and her book, Bad Feminist, continues in that bell hooks tradition of being razor sharp in analysis, but relatable and really down to earth. If you've watched Roxanne Gay's TED Talk, it's called Confessions of a Bad Feminist. And you might think that Roxanne Gay is a professional comedian, especially at the beginning of the talk. She's so funny and so real. And she explains that the title of her essay collection, Bad Feminist, refers to the fact that she herself messes up all the time in her feminism and she falls short of her own ideals, just as we all do. So it's a huge relief to listeners and readers to hear how she talks about feminism and that she's not a perfect feminist. Interestingly, Roxane Gay is not primarily a comedian. She's a writer and a public intellectual who has a PhD, and she's a professor at Yale. But before we get into more of Roxane Gay and, and this text, Bad Feminist, I want to introduce my reading partner, Setare Greenwood. Hi, Setare. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that you agreed to do this episode with me. <laughs> Setare and I know each other through my daughter, Lucy, who did the episode a little while ago on the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And Setare is an amazing actress. I've seen you on stage many times, and I oh always God, tell Lucy you. afterwards. Yes, it's true. You're so natural on stage and such an amazing actress. And I can also tell, like, you just bring a depth to your lines because I can tell you like connect to them intellectually. I can just tell you're smart even just by watching you act. <laughs> oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> it's true, it's true. You're also, I have to say, probably the most thoughtful friend. Well, I mean, the most thoughtful friend to Lucy and one of the most thoughtful friends I think I've ever witnessed. I just think you are an amazing human being and you have brought so much joy to my daughter's life and to our family. So um I just am so happy to know you and really excited to do this episode. So thanks for being here. And um, I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and kind of what makes you you. Sure. Well, first off, oh my God, I'm like, I'm, I'm so honored, so touched. I, ah, I need to collect myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, okay, so I'm uh, I'm recently 18. I've lived in California my whole life. I'm bi. I'm half Iranian. My mom came to the U.S. from Iran when she was uh, 14 for high school. And then she ended up having to stay here due to the Iranian Revolution in 1979. So she was here for, oh my God, I think like uh, for several years, for a while by herself, um, living with like this, this lady who took like exchange college students until her family was able to leave Iran. 
um, like sort of piece by piece. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. So you, her, yeah. her parents just got her out of the country when yeah, the revolution I mean, started? Basically, basically it was like, it was pretty common to like, I mean, it wasn't like super uncommon to go to like a different country, like for high school. Sure. Um, and so the, the goal, the plan was that she was going to get her diploma during the school year, like in English in America and then actually in California. And then she was going to go back to Iran during summers and like work during summers to get her Iranian diploma at the same time. But then I think she went back the first summer after the revolution because the revolution happened during the school year. And then after that, they agreed that it wasn't wise for her to be going back and forth. And there was like the hostage crisis and it was a whole mess. And so she ended up just staying in the U.S. And I think her father, my grandfather, was the last of the immediate family to come to the U.S. Like he had there was it was kind of messy because of like legal stuff. But um, they he had been under house arrest and then managed to get out to France and from France to the U.S. So that's. That's how that happened. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Contrastingly, my dad is is very American. He's of European descent. According to 23andMe, it's mostly British and German. But his family, with a couple exceptions, came to the U.S. roughly around the same time as like the Mayflower. So they've been here for quite a while. Um, wow. And yeah, both my parents come from like religious extended families, Baha'i and Muslim on my mom's side. And then Christian on my dad's, I don't know what denomination, but um, atheist households, which is why I don't know which denomination, because all of my grandparents are very atheist. And um, my parents are both atheist. And I would say I'm agnostic. I'm like, I'm very curious about like Islam and the Baha'i faith and Zoroastrianism and Sufism and all sorts of other religions that have influenced Iranian culture in particular, because like I've grown up kind of isolated from Iranian culture beyond my like immediate family. So I'm always trying to learn more about it. And I'm also just like really into Shakespeare and theater and music, especially choir um, and musicals. And then I stress paint quite a bit, especially in <laughs> quarantine. And in terms of like school stuff, uh, I'm going to be an English major next year, which is mostly exciting, but also slightly terrifying. Um, and I'm keeping my options kind of open because I'm really interested in a broad variety of things and they all feel very important and I care about them all a lot. So I'm having a hard time picking like a path mm -hmm. um, along that line. I haven't picked a college just yet, but I am leaning pretty heavily towards Mount Holyoke. So that's, that's pretty cool. Hopefully. That Good will job. Be Congratulations. Thank you so yeah. much. It's yeah. That's a, a great, <laughs> that's a great school. I was an English major. So um, oh, nice. yes. Welcome to the club. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> major. It's it, That's awesome. You'll do great. Thank um, you so much. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that bio. That's fascinating. And I also want to ask just quickly if you can talk about like what you think of when you think of breaking down patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I usually ask my reading partners that. Just like what does that term mean to you? And I had thought, I wondered if there were some like religious aspect to that for you. I re I just remember that you and Lucy did a project together for Honors American Literature where mm -hmm. you compared and contrasted uh, Mormonism with Islam. And I was just wondering if that, maybe that Muslim influence impacts the way you view patriarchy, but maybe not actually now that you talk about kind of your secular upbringing. What do you think? Well, I do think like it's definitely always been 
like a consideration because like although my parents and like my mom and her parents aren't like they aren't Muslim Mm -hmm. it's still such it's so like connected to Iranian culture in so many ways like there are a lot of there's a lot of overlap and so because of that like there are definitely some I guess religious factors to it just because I have an awareness of it specific to Islam because of my like family heritage but like most of my feelings about patriarchy I would say are largely like non-religious factors but um I think that like considering how to apply feminism and like feminist values to a religion or to a religious culture can be like a good litmus test for how practical and compassionate those values actually are uh so that's something that I try to do quite a bit just like as a thought experiment for instance, like people sometimes make the argument that like the hijab is anti-feminist and that banning it, like they're trying to do in France right now, will free women from patriarchy without considering like how essential autonomy and choice are to feminism. And that in banning the hijab, they're forcing women to conform to their idea of gender performance, which is just as harmful and exactly the same as forcing somebody to wear a garment that they don't want. Um mm. And so, I don't know, I just, I find it really frustrating that people who consider themselves feminists or who operate under the guise of feminism still enforce patriarchy, especially when it comes to, like, non-Western traditions and, like, non-white traditions and still try Mm -hmm. to control what other women do. And I I don't know, I just, I think feminism, um, which I believe has to be intersectional (laughs) in order to be feminism, is really vital to our culture in order for it to be sustainable. And I just, I really love the exploration of that in this podcast, which is why I'm just so excited about this. Oh, thanks, Satare. That's definitely the ideal that we're striving for constantly is to bring as many voices, as many diverse voices as possible to the conversation, because I absolutely agree. And that's my goal, to be as intersectional and aware of different women's experiences and different women's contexts as aware as possible. So that was, that was an amazing answer to that question. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, so the next step is to learn a little bit about the author of this book, Roxane Gay. So Satara, could you tell us about her? Sure. Okay, so Roxane Gay is an American writer, professor, editor, and social commentator. She was born in 1974 in Omaha, Nebraska, to parents who are both Haitian. And she began her undergrad studies at Yale, but then dropped out in her junior year to pursue a relationship in a different state then later completed her undergrad degree at Vermont College of Norwich University. So um, she then earned a master's degree with an emphasis in creative writing from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and then a PhD at Michigan Tech University in rhetoric and technical communication. So after completing her PhD in 2010, Gay began her academic teaching career at Eastern Illinois University, where she was assistant professor of English. While at Eastern Illinois, she was a contributing editor for Bluestem Magazine and also founded Tiny Hardcore Press. Next, she was an associate professor for creative writing in the Master of Fine Arts program at Purdue University. And in 2019, Gay started as a visiting professor at Yale. So she is a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times and the author of several short story collections, a novel, a memoir called Hunger, which came out in 2017, and Bad Feminist, which is an award-winning collection of essays. And Gay describes Bad Feminist in the following way. In each of these essays, I'm very much trying to show how feminism influences my life, for better or worse. 
It just shows what it's like to move through the world as a woman. It's not even about feminism per se. It's about humanity and empathy. Awesome. And that's definitely that quote kind of encapsulate what's what the book felt like Mm -hmm. for me. It felt like each essay, they're quite short essays. It's like such a readable Mm -hmm. book, right? Because they just they're just short and really concise. And they're on like lots and lots of different topics. I was kind of surprised by the variety, but it did just feel like an extended empathy piece about Mm -hmm. what it did feel like for her to be to be a woman and to be you know a daughter of Haitian immigrants and mm-hmm. I should mention here also you had already read Bad Feminist right yeah. Sakari before this project mm-hmm. so what did you think of it when you read it the first time well yeah like I read it around like I think the summer before freshman year of high school um, oh wow that's young yeah <laughs> it, it was it was probably a little bit too young for some of them. <laughs> But I was really struck by how honest and nuanced and vulnerable the book is. Uh, And it tackles like really difficult topics with like grace and complexity. And it never loses its awareness of like human nature or experience. Especially like, as you mentioned earlier, like she's so open about the fact that like she makes mistakes. She's a human being. She's going to screw up. And as I said, I was a a little bit too young, I think, to read some of the essays, especially the ones about rape and rape culture. But the ones about media and cultural analysis in particular really, really stuck with me. And they've really affected the way I think about the content I consume and how I like, think about popular narratives and cultural trends. Mm. And rereading it actually really highlighted to me how deeply it influenced me. Uh, for instance, like, like the research topic that I uh, chose for the most recent research essay in my English class has to do with like heteronormativity in fairy tales and like how that like buried messaging impacts people and like like that's something that I think I very much took away from her writing in this book so it's it's influenced me a great deal wow yeah that's awesome I've had that experience before too where I read something Mm -hmm. and that I've that I read like years prior and I thought yeah. it was a new idea to me and then I read it and I'm like oh I like I <laughs> someone else had that idea and that totally either subliminally kind of influenced me or even mm-hmm. consciously I'm like oh I didn't remember that I knew that a few years ago but it it's interesting how that information does change the way we think so that's really yeah really cool. Yeah. I think it's so cool how even without remembering like the context for how we learned something or like, like where it came from, like the, the impact of it stays with us. I just think that's really awesome. Yeah, I do too. Well, let's dig into the book. Like I said, there are many chapters on Mm -hmm. many different topics, but we each narrowed it down and we chose three chapters each and we'll just take turns. So, Satare, why don't you start us off and then we'll just go back and forth sharing our chapters. Okay, cool. Um, Okay, so the first chapter that I wanted to bring up was Peculiar Benefits, which talks about privilege and Roxane Gay's experience with reconciling the ways in which she's both privileged and marginalized as a Black second-generation immigrant woman from what she describes as a loving middle-slash-upper-middle-class family. Um, So it starts off with her talking about her experience visiting Haiti, where her parents are from, and seeing the juxtaposition of extreme poverty and, as she says, almost repulsive luxury. So at the beginning of the chapter, she states that, to see poverty so plainly and pervasively left a profound mark on me. 
And this is like, I don't know, it really stood out to me because I've been, I've been thinking a lot lately about how people rationalize othering people. And I think that one aspect of like how we white people especially are taught to other people is by like avoiding conversations and avoiding confronting poverty in particular and discussions about what allows poverty to exist. And so like, it's, it's very like hush hush, like we don't talk about this. And that makes it so that we are taught to think of it like poverty as shameful, which then feeds into this mindset that equates lack of success with like moral failings, which makes it even harder to acknowledge and address privilege because then you're stuck believing that people suffering are suffering purely because of their own actions and not because of systems set up that make it harder for them to succeed like the prison industrial complex or the wage gap. And that can be really detrimental to movements that are trying to fix these issues. And then this chapter also talked about uh, what I've heard some people refer to as like pain Olympics, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. So Gay says that when we talk about privilege, some people start to play a very pointless and dangerous game where they try to mix and match various demographic characteristics to determine who wins at the game of privilege. Who would win in a privilege battle between a wealthy black woman and a wealthy white man? Who would win in a privilege battle between a queer white man and a queer Asian woman? Who would win in a privilege battle between a working class white man and a wealthy, differently abled Mexican woman? We could play this game all day and never find a winner. So I just, I really love how she puts this. I think that by making the discussion about who has more privilege and like ranking marginalized identities according to privilege, it's like just a distraction. We just ignore the very real issues of economic, social, and political systems that are built to oppress people. And that distraction allows more people to be hurt. And I I don't know, I've definitely had to remind myself uh, not to take conversations or my internal reactions there when listening to people talk about negative ramifications of privilege, especially when it comes to race. Because like, as I mentioned earlier, like I'm, I'm half Iranian and have always sort of felt like an urge to like connect there because I feel kind of disconnected. So then when there's a conversation about like, like I, I recently saw like some TikTok videos of, that were these like queer black women talking about their experiences and like patterns that they'd seen with like white women in particular, like doing certain things or saying certain things that they, because of their like identities could identify like as hurtful and like talking about why they were wrong and why you shouldn't do this. And there's just like such an urge to distance myself from like American whiteness, Mm -hmm. even though I still benefit from white privilege in so many ways. And so I'm really working on internalizing my acknowledgement of it because I know intellectually like how things are and like that I have this privilege, but it's just something that you have to reconcile with yourself. So I I make sure not to bring up these conflictions in discussions like about other people's experiences or just things that if it would derail a discussion by accidentally making it about white guilt, like I really try not to bring it up Mm. um, because it's, it's definitely difficult, but it's not as bad as the actual oppression. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, so just what, what do you what do you think about these sorts of things? Oh, wow. Well, I think that's so important that everything you just said was so fantastic. But in that last thing about that we sometimes accidentally 
make the discussion about white guilt and center Mm -hmm. ourselves instead Mm -hmm. of listening to what other people are expressing. I'm definitely taking that in and making sure that I always have that at the forefront of my mind. That's a a great reminder to always think about that. Mm -hmm. So important. I'm really glad you chose this chapter. This was one of the chapters that was like very heavily highlighted for me as well. Mm So I, yeah, I just think her discussion of privilege is so, so helpful. I actually read this book at a time where I was having lots of conversations with a lot of white men Mm -hmm. um, who are friends of mine who are, who are really trying to do this hard work of introspection and really struggling with their own, you know, white guilt and male guilt Mm -hmm. and, and also struggling with like defensiveness and, And I appreciate them for doing that work because it's it is hard work. And mm-hmm. I think her her insight is so helpful. When a couple of quotes that stood out to me from the chapter, she says, quote, nearly everyone, particularly in the developed world, has something someone else doesn't, something that someone else yearns for. And I was thinking about, you know, people I know, relatives that I love who are white and male, but who have significant physical handicaps that make everyday life really, really hard. And a friend I knew, you know, a a mom of one of my kids' friends at school who seemed to have everything. She's like super wealthy, super beautiful. And I found out later that she was like being abused at home, that her husband Mm -hmm. was like hitting her (laughs) at home and like had had tons of affairs. And and so that point that Roxanne Gay makes about the different ways that we are privileged And then the different ways that we're not is just, again, it's so like, it just is, it almost makes you like breathe a sigh of relief of like, yes, that's what I'm seeing in my real life. Like, these are the people I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she says, another quote, she says, quote, we tend to believe that accusations of privilege imply we have it easy, which we resent because life is hard for nearly everyone. Of course, we resent these accusations. And then she goes on to say, white men tend to say, it's not my fault I'm a white man, or I'm, insert other condition that discounts their privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And she continues, and she says, instead of simply, simply accepting that in this regard, yes, they benefit from certain privileges that others do not. To have privilege in one or more areas does not mean you are wholly privileged, Surrendering to the acceptance of privilege is difficult, but it is really all that is expected. What I remind myself regularly is this. The acknowledgement of my privilege is not a denial of the ways I have been and am marginalized, the ways I have suffered. You don't necessarily have to do anything once you acknowledge your privilege. You don't have to apologize for it. But then she also says, quote, you need to understand the consequences of your privilege and remain aware that people who are different from you move through and experience the world in ways you might never know anything about, end quote. So I loved that chapter. I'm really Mm -hmm. glad you chose to highlight it because I do think everyone reading the book can benefit from that and learn from that. So yeah, definitely. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that passage in particular is like, it's so important. And she puts it like very clearly. And I think that that's, I don't know, just something to print and have up on a wall. Um, I think that like, 
that in particular is like a major reason why it can be so difficult to have discussions about like how to dismantle systems that are hurting people because like so many people recoil from acknowledging their privilege because of like other aspects of their identity or of their lives that make life difficult. And I, I don't know, I've been having a lot of conversations about this sort of thing, like with family lately, again, like especially with white men and like a lot of the resistance I've noticed seems to come from a fear that like if they have, or if they acknowledge their privilege, they're no, they're not going to be welcome in discussions about how to fix systemic issues. And, like no one will want to hear from them because they're, mm. for instance, able-bodied cishet white men. And therefore they feel like their voices won't be welcome. And like, I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting to me. I can definitely understand that fear, but it just feels counterproductive. And at least in terms of uh, like dismantling patriarchy, uplifting women, which is one of the things I can speak to, like, I think men are needed and necessary in that discussion, especially because they have privilege and then are able to use the authority that their privilege gives them to reach people who might not listen to a woman about the exact same issue. Like they can enact change at a higher level because like there are more men in government and like amplify voices and important points that need to be heard. And I think that that's really valuable. And I just, I don't know. I think that people who, when, when people are afraid of acknowledging their privilege because they're worried that it'll take them out of the conversation, that takes them out of the conversation mm. in a harmful way. And I think that's a shame. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a great point. I think that's so, so great to reframe. I know that in past episodes, too, we've talked about this, that a lot of men have ex have been experiencing, like you described, like a fear of like, kind of this redefining of what it means to be a man and especially a white mm -hmm. man. And like, well, if I'm not this thing that maybe my grandpa was, you know, the, the traditional stereotypical kind of like American cowboy guy, right? Um, like how, like, can I be that? Is it okay if I'm that? And, and if my role isn't to be, especially, you know, if we're talking about conservative, conservative religions, if my role isn't to be a leader over women, as a patriarch, then how how can I be a hero, especially if it's in like a benevolent patriarchy where it's like, oh, I mm -hmm. thought that's what I was supposed to be. And so if any men are listening, I would just say, like, rewind this a little bit and listen to what Sitare just said about how you can be a hero. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. like you acknowledge privilege and then like Roxanne Gay says, you don't necessarily have to do anything with that privilege once you acknowledge it. But the next part that I didn't read was where she said, but you can do a lot of good. And that's what you just said, Satare, about mm. using that privilege to amplify voices that currently are having a hard time getting heard. Like that's mm -hmm. what you can do to be the person that you want to be, to be the good guy in this, in this situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> okay. Let's go on to the next chapter. One chapter that I chose to highlight is called How We All Lose. And she starts by saying that some people claim that, quote, if women's fortunes improve, it must mean men's fortunes will suffer, as if there's a finite amount of good fortune in the universe that cannot be shared equally between men and women, mm -hmm. end quote. I totally talk to both men and women who believe in this, this kind of zero-sum game way of looking at it. 
And I just think that this is a common fear whenever things change. I think of all over the world in all different times when different caste systems are being challenged and dismantled. It dismantled. I think of you know, feudalism in Europe when things began to shift and peasants began to have more rights and the social order started to to change. And and that's scary for for scary for everybody, really. But the aristocracy, you know, feels afraid. Like, what will my place be in the world? Right. I guess like I just mm-hmm. said about men, like, wait, but I thought that was how I was supposed to be. And you're telling me that I'm not well what about my work? What about my land? What about like what's going to happen mm-hmm. to me? Am I going to become irrelevant? And so Roxanne Gay, I mean, this chapter is called How We All Lose. And she's saying that seeing things as a zero-sum game is how we all lose. And I, I, I wanted to mention, too, I've, I've said before, but I, I personally really actually don't resonate with the phrase the future is female for that exact reason, because I, I don't like that binary thinking. I don't like that feeling of like, well, the the past for all recorded time has been run by men. And so the future is going to be all run by women. I just, I, I see that as too much of a pendulum swing. And mm-hmm. so this is the mindset that, that Roxane Gay takes on in this chapter. She specifically criticizes Hannah Rosen's book, which is titled The End of Men and the Rise of Women which is a book that apparently claims that patriarchy is already dead and women already have everything that they could ever want. And Gay does actually a lot of literary criticism in this book. She'll like talk about, you know, real books that are out on the market right now and real songs and movies and stuff. And Gay responds to this book by saying that claiming that patriarchy is dead is ridiculous. She says it's, quote, so patently absurd that the hashtag rip patriarchy quickly flourished on Twitter in response which I Mm -hmm. thought was hilarious. Um, And she says, quote, Rosen is not wrong that life has improved in measurable ways for women, but she is wrong in suggesting that better is good enough. Better is not good enough. And it's a shame that anyone would be willing to settle for so little. Mm -hmm. End quote. And then she shares two very different examples of current culture that demonstrate that patriarchy is still alive and well. Quote, at TechCrunch's 2013 Disrupt, two programmers shared the TitStare app, which is exactly what you think it is. Something so puerile is hardly worth anyone's time or energy, but it's one more example of the cultural stupidity that is fueled by misogyny. Mm -hmm. End quote. And just a note, this book was published in 2014, so Me Too hadn't happened yet. I'm sure there would be several robust chapters on Me Too. Oh, definitely. If she were to write an addendum to Bad Feminist. but And then the other example that she shares from a, a really different manifestation of patriarchy, she says, quote, Fix the Family, a conservative Catholic, quote, family values organization, published a lot of reasons why families should not send their daughters to college, end quote. And she says, like, it was not satirical list. It was actually sincere. And Mm. I would have thought like, oh, that must be like super extreme. But since I started this podcast, I've had listeners, you know, send me links to videos on YouTube and TikTok videos with like evangelical Christian dads. Like I've gotten multiples of these that were like, these dads are very earnest saying that they're teaching their daughters to be subservient to men 
because that's biblical and they want to like train them righteously so that they are really good women when they grow up and they don't have unrealistic expectations of equality. And it like knocks the wind right out of me to watch these videos. Yeah. And and it's real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's unbelievable. So yes, patriarchy, in case anyone has gotten this far in the podcast and still believes that patriarchy <laughs> doesn't exist now. I, I mean, this is the, the argument that Gay is making. She says, quote, feminists are celebrating our victories and ex- acknowledging our privilege when we have it. We're simply refusing to settle. We're refusing to forget how much work there is yet to be done. We're refusing to relish the comforts we have at the expense of the women who are still seeking comfort end quote. So this one, that was a huge point for me too in that chapter, because I mean, I do have friends, there's like a spectrum, right? Depending where you grew up, when you grew up, what your family culture is like. And so, you know, maybe a woman reading this chapter really does feel like in her community, everything really is quite equitable. And she had all the opportunities that her brothers had, and she's never felt oppressed. I, I can't imagine that that there's like no, <laughs> no evidence of patriarchy in her life, but maybe mm-hmm. so. And that would be awesome. But I think we all need to remember that even, yeah, even in our own country, there are so many women who do face terrible inequities and all over the world, nobody's free until everybody's free. Mm-hmm. That is one of my favorite quotes by Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a civil rights worker that I just love. And that's what came to mind when I read that. So Sitara, what did you think of this chapter? Yeah, I thought it was just like really interesting. I especially resonated with your last point about refusing to settle with our like own comforts as long as there's still work to be done. I think that's like, it's so vital. And there's an argument that you hear sometimes like, oh, you should be appreciative. Think about insert X culture. They have it so much worse. You have nothing to complain about. And I don't know. In my experience, rarely is the person making the statement actually working to make things better for the people that they're using as an example, mm. um, which really bothers me. Like I've heard it a lot in the context of, and not not like from Iranians, just like from people of like, oh, why are you so angry about how LGBT plus people are treated in this country? Think of how well off you are. You're Iranian. You could be gay in Iran, which mm. is like, oh, I, it really bothers me using other people's like trauma uh, and like oppression as just like a way to guilt people and like Mm. manipulate them out of fixing our broken systems and helping people. It just guilts people into complacency. It never helps anybody. Mm. And that, that really aggravates me. But yeah, no, your, your point is so, so relevant. That's such a good quote. Like nobody's free until everybody's free. Yeah. And then another chapter that I wanted to highlight, it's called garish glorious spectacles And it has to do with gender performance and what Roxane Gay calls green girls, which is a term based off of a novel by the same name by Kate Zambrino. And essentially, Gay defines a green girl as, quote, a young woman who is learning how to perform her femininity, who is learning the power of it, the fragility. Her education is, at times, painful. The green girl is as vicious as she is vulnerable. And then she goes on to say that the novel, quote, Green Girl, reveals the intimate awareness many women have about the ways they are on display when they move in public, about the ways they perform their roles as women. Okay, so I personally have currently, just in my life, uh, as a recent 18-year-old, 
have a lot of questions about like gender expression and performance and what it means to be a woman. So I found this chapter really intriguing, especially how green girls are described as knowing the rules to their existence, like all of these expectations of how they must be and how exhausted they seem following them. For instance, like one girl, quote, wants to put her fist through a window, but she doesn't because she knows that's not what is expected of a green girl. And then later, like in regards to another literary green girl, Gay states, quote, what the people in her life label throughout the novel as insanity or selfishness reads quite clearly as weariness, a weariness of playing her part properly, of being on display, of being the ingenue and the good green girl. So I, I don't know, that that really struck me. And I, I have some some questions <laughs> about gender and its performance. And they can be rhetorical, but I'd also just really love to know what you think. And I don't have any solid answers yet. But um, mm. I guess I guess the first one is like, what does your gender mean to you? And like, how do you express it? And how do you perform it? To me personally? Sure. Okay. Hmm. Those are good questions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... What does my gender mean to me and how do I express it or perform it? Mm -hmm. um, well, I remember I remember one of my earliest memories is jumping on the bed and my mom trying to get me to wear these corduroy pants that she had sewn for me. Mm -hmm. And I refused because I would only wear skirts and dresses. So how, so I remember being as a little girl very much identifying with the cultural expectations of what femininity meant and that I was a girl. It, it did happen to feel quite natural to me from a young age. But with that said, I feel like I like I think you you asked how do how do I perform it or how do I express it? How do I perform it? I've definitely experienced what it feels like to perform femininity or perform my gender when it didn't feel as natural. And one thing that comes to mind we talked a little bit about on our episode on Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, where there's so much expected of women and like the mm -hmm. standards of gender performance get really, really involved, really intense and actually really unnatural. Right. I remember like so many times getting dressed for church because Mormons dress up to go to church a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one day where I was like, comparing, I don't know if this answers your question, Satari, but this is what comes to my mind. I yeah, remember absolutely. comparing and my husband was getting ready for church next to me and I was wearing like Spanx under my dress. So mm -hmm. like sucking my body in to make it look skinnier. Mm -hmm. I was wearing like heels to make myself look taller. I was wearing mascara to make my eyelashes look blacker. I was wearing lip gloss to make my lips look shinier than they are. Mm -hmm. I had recently colored my hair because my hair was starting to go gray. I like I just looked at myself and I was like there are so many things I just did to my body mm -hmm. to make it look different and to make it conform to this ideal of what it meant to be a woman and I looked at my husband and he literally just walked in and put on different clothes and did nothing to his yeah. body. Like his face was his face, his hair was his hair and he just put on different clothes. And so that I hated. And I mm -hmm. sometimes would cry actually and just be like, I hate this, but I would continue to perform it mm -hmm. because that was what I felt was expected of me. I don't know. Yeah. That's one thing that comes to mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. 
yeah, like in regards to um, like making physical changes, I've been noticing like in quarantine and like it's it's changed with how much I have to be on Zoom and stuff. But like like I I used to tell myself like all the time, like, oh, I'm, I'm wearing makeup because I want to. Like mm-hmm. I like the way that I do my makeup and I'm doing this because it makes me happy. And then I started trying to just like not do certain things just to see how I would feel. And like, I can't go on Zoom without eyeliner. Like I feel so mm. weird. And like, that's, that, that feels wrong <laughs> and unnatural. And like, like I've seen my brother join Zoom meetings and he's just like wearing his pajamas and mm-hmm. existing and mm-hmm. it's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, there. it's just such a different like standard, even if there aren't people explicitly telling you to do something, there's very much like an expectation that you're going to do more. Right, right. And of course, we've talked about on other episodes, too, how there's like very rigid roles for the ways that boys and men express Mm -hmm. or perform, perform their gender as well. It just doesn't require as much physical, like change to their bodies to conform to like beauty standards. But yeah, we've talked about other ways that that boys are that boys suffer too when they when it's right. not a natural performance when they don't um, resonate with the way that society is asking them to perform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the the one thing I'm or one thing I'm still curious about is like like in in your opinion, what do you think needs to change so that gender performance as opposed to just expression? is less mandatory. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's such a, yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, obviously there's a huge variety, right? I mean, if you look at the whole world, Mm -hmm. different cultures have a lot uh, more stringent authoritative policing of gender Mm -hmm. performance. I mean, you know, cause your mom escaped from the Iranian revolution, right? Where, yeah. am I right? I mean, honestly, my the extent of my Iranian history knowledge is basically from the Persepolis books. So I'm, oh, not, nice. I'm not an expert, but, but I mean, the certain dress became mandatory for women mm-hmm. where it hadn't been before. Right. Yeah. And so I think, and that's common with lots of fundamentalist religions mm-hmm. that they, they police gender performance, but so does secular Hollywood. I mean, we, so there are certain, I think, like cultural bubbles wherein gender performance is way more policed than in others. But mm-hmm. what can we do to change what needs to change so that gender performance is less mandatory? Well, one thing that comes to my mind is, well, when we say performance, right? I used to do plays and musicals, too, when I was mm-hmm. younger. And some roles felt natural to me. I don't know if you've had this experience, too, where yeah. like it was written by somebody else. And so you could argue like, well, that's not natural, but it just kind of fit. It just kind of resonated kind of like me being a little girl saying, well, it it just so happens that I like wearing dresses. That's what's Mm -hmm. expected, but it is a natural expression for me. Great. It fits. But I also like, I remember having roles and having to act out things on stage where I like hated it, Mm -hmm. hate it. And it just felt like I had to sing this song called The Cow Cow Boogie. <laughs> oh my God. We had to sing that in choir a couple years ago. It was the worst. <laughs> it's so terrible. It's so bad. It's so embarrassing. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. My kids still make fun of me for like the 
for singing that song on stage and they knew how absolutely miserable I was. I didn't remember that you had to sing that too. Yeah, I don't oh. think I don't think Lucy did. It was uh when she was in ACAP and I was in concert oh. choir. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like humiliating. I mean, maybe that's yeah. too trivial of an example to use, but even just being a kid and having like your mom give you clothes and you're like, I hate this. And then having to wear it and just feeling like you want to crawl out of your skin because you're Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable with the way that you're being kind of forced to present yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think just like, I hope, I I would think that every person has had that experience before where they're like, oh, I hated that feeling where I was having to do something that I did not want to do and didn't feel like me and didn't feel like who I authentically was. And hopefully if we all can like step into each other's shoes and just think, oh my gosh, what would I feel like if that's the way I felt all the time with my societies and my culture's expectations of me that I just like mm-hmm. wanted to, yeah, I wanted to just crawl out of my skin and wanted to cry all the time. Like, I don't feel like this is really me. Then mm-hmm. hopefully that maybe can transform culture if we all are like, asking each other, like, how do you feel? If you don't want to do it, let's expand the definitions of what it means to be a girl or what it means, you know what I mean? So that we can accommodate everybody and everyone can be more authentically themselves. Is that, am I answering the question that you're asking? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful answer. Yeah. It's given me a lot to think about. I really loved that. Well, I'm no expert. We're all just kind of figuring this out as we go, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are new topics and new questions that humans are asking for the first time. And I think it hopefully will save people from suffering, right? I mean, that have really suffered with this throughout, throughout time. Yeah. Okay. Next chapter. Mm -hmm. Another chapter that I chose is called some jokes are funnier than others. So I'm going to start with just an anecdote from my life. My sister, Lindsay, who is a nurse, she's the one who did the episode on Roe versus Wade with me. A couple of years ago, she worked at a hospital where her coworkers would always use the word rape as slang. And she would like tell me this on the phone. I don't know if you've heard that, Tatare, but I mm-hmm. never had before. And she never had before either. And they would they would say, like, did you see, like, you know, the supervisor or whatever, their boss would post the schedule and they would say, like, oh, my gosh, I got raped in oh, the schedule awful. this week. It's right. Like, so awful. And she I think she was she <laughs> kind of felt like an alien, like, wait a second, am, am I hearing this right? And why am I the only one? who thinks that this is terrible. So she she kind of at first tried to gently steer them away from using that word, just kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, or she kind of like change the direction of the conversation. And eventually right. they used it all the time. And eventually she, she told them directly and just said like, please don't say that around me. And she shared the story of how our, our sister was raped during college. Mm-hmm. And, and even they as nurses, they, occasionally they will have to deliver a baby that was conceived from a sexual assault. And so she was just really like stunned that they would be using this language. And eventually, actually, she ended up quitting her job at that hospital and transferring to a different hospital because it was so upsetting to her. And she, we would just talk about like, how, how can people talk like that? And 
In this chapter, some jokes are funnier than others. Roxanne Gay talks about, because she's such a like an incisive commentator on culture, mm-hmm. Gay takes this on as one of her topics and like how rape, the word rape and the concept of rape is used in popular culture. So she says that it's used constantly in humor by celebrities. And, and Gay talks about the comedian Daniel Tosh, who apparently uses rape humor as part of his shtick all the time. And she talks about one incident where he was doing a set at the Laugh Factory in L.A. And she says, quote, During that set, a young woman in the audience yelled, Actually, rape jokes are never funny. Tosh maturely responded, Wouldn't it be funny if that girl got raped by like five guys right now? Like right now? What if a bunch of guys just raped her? Then Gay says, What if, indeed? There's no better follow-up for a rape joke than a gang rape joke, because if rape is funny, gang rape is funnier. Rape humor is designed to remind women that they are still not quite equal. Just as their bodies and reproductive freedom are open to legislation and public discourse, so are their other issues. When women respond negatively to misogynistic or rape humor, they are sensitive. Perhaps rape jokes are funny. But I cannot fathom how. Humor is subjective, but is it that subjective? I don't have it in me to find rape jokes funny or tolerate them in any way. It's too close a topic. Rape is many things. Humiliating, degrading, physically and emotionally painful. Exhausting, irritating, and sometimes it is even banal. It is rarely funny for most women. There are not enough years in this lifetime to create the kind of distance where I could laugh and say, that one time when I was gang raped was totally hilarious, a real laugh riot. That's the end of her quote. So if you watch Gay's TED Talk, she mentions a time when she was silenced, when a group of boys tried to take her voice away. And I watched that TED Talk of hers years ago, years before I read her book, and and I could tell just from her voice that she had experienced something horrific, but I didn't know what. And so when I read this book, she talks about what she was referring to in her TED Talk. And she talks about how at the age of 12, her boyfriend at the time lured her into a shack in the woods. They were out, took a bike ride together, and he brought her to this shack. And he had told a bunch of his friends that he would bring her there, and they ambushed her and gang raped her. And she talks a lot in the book and then especially in her memoir, Hunger, she talks about the devastating impact that that had on her for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So in terms of using rape as a joke, she says, quote, Some, somewhere along the line, we started misinterpreting the First Amendment and this idea of the freedom of speech the amendment grants us. We are free to speak as we choose without fear of prosecution or persecution, but we are not free to speak as we choose without consequence. Those who refrain from using humor to comment on the awful things in the world don't abstain because they are afraid. Maybe, just maybe, they have common sense. They have conscience. Sometimes saying what others are afraid or unwilling to say is just being an a-hole. We are all free to be a-holes, but we are not free to do so without consequence. What do you think of that, Satare? I mean, first off, the 
that that section in the in the book is like it's one of the hardest to get through but i also think one that's very important to get through like the the way that she talks about her experience is you you very much can tell the you you get a, a strong indication of the kind of impact that it would have on her life or on anyone's life and i think i don't know i mean people who who use rape jokes would do well to read it and mm-hmm. um, would probably change their mind about what's okay for them to be saying. But also I just, I think the distinction between free speech and consequence free speech is absolutely vital. And it's sickening that so many people, mostly men, but as you said, somehow also women feel so comfortable and like cavalier making jokes about such a horrific trauma that so many people experience and it especially bothers me how like goading so many of these jokes are. It's not like rape victims talking about their experience or like just talking about doing things without consent. It's people talking about how it's like not that bad or here's a thing you should do to take away a woman's autonomy and then classifying that as a joke. Like it's, ugh, I don't know. It's, it's heartbreakingly indicative of how little some people regard women as human beings who are like deserving of compassion and empathy or at the very least respect. Um, Mm. But it's also like really hard to regulate in the chapter blurred lines. Indeed. Gay later says, quote, I hate rape jokes, but I hate censorship more. I hate that I have to choose. And that, I don't know that that struggle is very palpable. I think, especially in this country. And I, I do have a question. What do you what do you think would have to change so that we don't have to choose? Well, maybe just that people like she says that if people censor themselves in an mm. appropriate way, right? That if yeah. if a, a joke comes to your mind, you run it through a filter of mm. an ethical code that says, "Do I, is this joke worth harming someone?" in order to get a laugh, right? And then, so if if people are acting morally and kindly, and we we all have the responsibility to to censor our behaviors and our our speech, that, I mean, that's what ethics is about, right? Mm -hmm. Is self-governance. And so if we're all doing a better job acting empathically, then there's no need for some, you know, federal law or, you know, some overreaching censorship to crack down on that it just it requires more of the individual Mm -hmm. and then you don't have to choose (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely yeah that that ties in to this next point which is blurred lines indeed gay talks about how quote a culture that treats women as objects that gleefully supports entertainment that is more often demeaning to women than it is not that encourages the erosion of a woman's autonomy and personal space is the same culture that elects lawmakers who work tirelessly to enact restrictive abortion legislation? Or is it that state lawmakers who work tirelessly to enact restrictive abortion legislation encourage their constituents to treat women as objects? Perhaps this is trickle-down misogyny. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I, oh, I don't know. I think this is a brilliant and a vital point where like seemingly small things where people will be like, oh, you're making a big deal out of nothing if you call it out, like songs or jokes or poorly written characters, like they build up 
and they make disrespecting women a cultural norm. And then they also normalize like having control over women to such an extent that lawmakers with exactly that intent are electable despite or because of that intent. And then the restrictive laws that those lawmakers propose or then pass are supported or not noticed because dehumanizing women is then like a cultural norm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I find that very worrying. Yeah, definitely. And that reminds me of she talks about this in her TED talk and in the Mm -hmm. book that one way that she's a you know, quote unquote, bad feminist. Mm -hmm. One of her like guilty pleasures is that she listens to rap music with terribly misogynistic lyrics. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's one that's one thing that she acknowledges, like really does impact our culture and that it just keeps perpetuating even violent misogyny. But that she's like, oh, but the music is so catchy. I cannot stop listening to it. Yeah. So what do you think about that? I mean, that's hard, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to avoid consuming misogynistic things. Like, it's in everything. But I don't know. I think that this is, I guess it's useful to identify what about the lyrics or, like, the show or the movie or the book, etc., is misogynistic. Like, what is it that you don't like about it and why? And then what is it that draws you to it anyway? Because, Mm. I mean, misogynistic messaging is pretty inescapable. But by identifying it and then, like, recognizing it for what it is, we're less likely to buy into it unknowingly. And then at least, like, we know what we're consuming and we're not going to be, like, influenced by it without realizing. Because, like, I don't think it makes someone a bad person to like a song that has bad things in it. It just means that they have to think critically. And like, that's something we all have to do. But like on a larger scale, I think, like, I I truly believe that the more people come to recognize misogyny and its nuances and why it's bad, the more like music and shows and movies and books and so forth will have that are free from it or that treat it Mm. more like seriously or more respectfully and I think that's that's one of many reasons uh, to push for more understanding and change. Mm. What a fantastic point. That's really true. And if we're just silent about it and continue to consume it or and continue to like not say anything about it when we see mm-hmm. it, then that that change won't ever happen. Right. But I think you're right. And things in some areas, I would say probably in music, they have gotten worse over the decades, like if we compare to, you know, a few decades ago in music, but in a lot of media, it actually has gotten better. Mm-hmm. And that's because of activism, like you, like you say, that it, it, that better stuff will be produced if there's a demand for it. Right. Yeah. And, and more educate, like children who are being educated right now will grow up to be adults that produce more egalitarian and less misogynistic media yeah. in the future. Mm-hmm. If we train them that way. Okay, last chapter is the trouble with Prince Charming. So, I like I said before, I just love that Roxanne Gay is really just a true cultural critic because she takes seriously the media that people really read, right? And that like things that people really watch and mm-hmm. and consume from childhood through adulthood. I could, you know, I just thinking back to other authors that we've read on this podcast series, 
um, like Simone de Beauvoir, who's so highbrow and kind of elitist and intellectual. I love that, again, Bell Hooks and Roxane Gay both, they are so intellectual and just razor sharp and brilliant, but they're also just like, let's talk about Disney movies. They have their finger on the pulse of what real people consume and like the actual American psyche. Mm -hmm. And so in this chapter, The Trouble with Prince Charming, she examines the dynamics that kids absorb from fairy tales and Disney movies, which you could speak to expertly after your senior thesis, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit. (laughs) (laughs) And then she takes on also Twilight the mm-hmm. book series, and then the book series Fifty Shades of Grey, which I've never read Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey, but I mean, it's enough in the culture that I n- know what it is. And I thought it was really interesting, her commentary on it. Mm-hmm. So the first thing she talks about is a little bit about, you know, earlier fairy tales and Disney movies where the princess is passive and helpless, you know, like Snow White and um, Cinderella. And then she also talks about how in in the 1990s, Disney started representing kind of spunkier heroines, but Gay points out a really troubling dynamic, and and she talks about the movie Beauty and the Beast, which was actually one of my favorite movies. Um, it came out when I was in high school, actually, and she says this quote: "In Beauty and the Beast, Belle is given away by her father to the Beast himself." and then must endure the attentions of a man who essentially views her as chattel. Only through sacrificing herself and loving a beast of a man can she finally learn that he is, in fact, a handsome prince. End quote. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's a really troubling dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's kind of a, a thread that goes through all three of these pieces through Beauty and the Beast, Twilight, and Fifty Shades of Grey. So in Twilight, she says, quote, Edward Cullen is theoretically attractive, but seems to have only one interest, loving Bella and controlling every decision she makes. We're supposed to believe this obsessive control and devotion are somehow appealing. We're supposed to believe he is Prince Charming, albeit flawed because he needs to drink blood to survive. Accepting Edward's controlling obsession and vampirism is the compromise required of Bella. End quote. Okay, and then the third one that I'm going to read is, she says, In Fifty Shades of Grey, quote, These books are really about Anna trying to change slash save Christian from his demons. She is the virginal good girl who can lead the dark bad boy to salvation. At one point during their courtship, Anna thinks, quote, This man, whom I once thought of as a romantic hero, a brave shining white knight, or the dark knight, as he said, he's not a hero. He's a man with serious, deep emotional flaws, and he's dragging me into the dark. Can I not guide him into the light? End quote. Okay, and I read that with that facetious and mocking tone of voice because she says she loves Fifty Shades of Grey because it is such bad writing. It like <laughs> makes her laugh and is entertaining because it's yeah. so bad, which I have heard from other people too. Like, oh, it's bad writing, but yeah. I mean, but she's taking on these. Oh, sorry, Sethari. Oh, I was just gonna say it originated as I think Twilight fan fiction. Yes, um, I heard. Yes, yeah. I've never that. read either, but yeah, all the quotes that she uses are they're 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 not written well. No, they're <laughs> comically bad. Yeah, but so widely consumed, right? Mm-hmm. And 
And so it becomes kind of part of our literary DNA, right? Like anybody who reads it, like you were saying before about reading Bad Feminist when you were, you know, 13 or 14. And it right. it gets into you in a way that you don't even recognize and, and shapes the way we think. Everything we consume does, right? It shapes the way we think. It becomes part of us. And so she's taking this on, even though it's not serious literature, it is a serious issue because so many people consume this stuff. So Right. So she so basically she's she's talking about in all three cases, right? She's talking about this girl, like a very young woman who's put in a situation where she is supposed to be the the bright shining light and the savior of this very controlling really actually abusive, emotionally abusive and sometimes even physically abusive man especially in the case of Beauty and the Beast and in Fifty Shades of Grey. It reminded me, and I won't go too too deep into this, but if listeners are interested in looking into this further, if you remember the episode on Mary Magdalene, the scholar who I invited to be on that episode is named Dr. Kayleen Asbo. And I once went to a workshop with her where she highlighted a series of Picasso's artworks. And Picasso did a really long, like decades long series on minotaurs. And I looked up, I was looking again to refresh my memory at like a lot of his minotaur, like sketches and paintings. Some of them are kind of pornographic, so I can't really necessarily recommend them. So I was looking at the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, looking at their website, and they described the minotaur put Picasso's Minotaur as, quote, the mythical Minotaur, part man, part bull, was Picasso's alter ego in the 1930s and part of a broader exploration of classicism that persisted in his work for many years. It expressed complex emotions at a time of personal turmoil. The Minotaur symbolized lasciviousness, violence, guilt, and despair. And Dr. Asbo talked a lot about that, that, that Picasso had like these dark, violent urges. He was really sexually exploitative of women and quite a womanizer. And so a lot of these Minotaur drawings are of Minotaur, this Minotaur raping women. And, and so it was like his way of kind of like dealing with these very dark urges that he had. And he represented himself literally as a monster in these drawings. And so Dr. Asbo showed this, this painting called Minotaur Maki. And if you look it up online, you see there's this Minotaur, like this huge, huge, monstrous bull-headed creature. And he's, it, I believe he's just killed a horse. And or he's killed a woman that's on a horse, but you can tell there's like blood and guts, and he's like this violent creature, and it's very busy art and like um a lot of turmoil in the piece. And then mm-hmm. to slightly to the left of center, there's this young girl, like almost in kind of a s- schoolgirl clothes. And she's holding up a candle in one hand and she has a bunch of flowers in the other. So she's like this angelic vision of kind of reaching out to this monstrous, violent creature. And she's I, I just feel like she's like in the savior role. She's the angel in the house. She's inspiring him and and forgiving and forgiving and and guiding him to the light. Like like it literally says in in the 
quote that Roxane Gay shared. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, so this this visual came to my mind. This is the long way of kind of describing this visual that came to my mind of of this controlling and violent man who has who's trying to figure out how to be better. And there's this little girl that comes up and says, like, I'll help you, like, walk toward the candle and putting herself in harm's way and in order to save him. So on one hand, Mm -hmm. I've really wrestled with this since I saw this series of Picasso paintings. I've really wrestled with seeing relationships like that in my own life because I have not in my marriage. So I should say that. But um (laughs) On one hand, it's really empowering and beautiful for someone to be forgiving and to lead someone to, you know, with love to lead them to a better path. But on the other hand, in all of these stories, in all of these paintings, it's this girl is perpetuating and and enabling her own abuse. And she's Mm -hmm. being used so that the man who's the protagonist and in the center can learn how to not be a monster so she's just playing a supporting role in this drama where it's his story arc that's primary and she's just there to facilitate his development or get killed in the process. Right. She's in terrible danger doing this. And I, I just feel like I feel conflicted about it. Um, and it, But what Roxane Gay, I think, is saying is like that is not OK for our culture to keep kind of idolizing the girl or woman in this role of the abused mm-hmm. person who's who's trying to, you know, save the monster from his monstrosity. So what do you think, Satare? Well, first off, that's like such a fascinating example with the Picasso paintings. I don't think I'd ever heard of that series. But um, I think it's, I mean, it's partially, I think, an issue of representation where like the vast majority or like there are just so many different stories or paintings or like songs or whatever with that trope that like mm-hmm. it's so pervasive um that that becomes the only representation and if it were a case of like several stories of that but also like diverse stories with diverse storylines where women have autonomy I don't think it would be such an issue, but because it's existing kind of by itself, it becomes more problematic than it would be otherwise. And like, as you mentioned, it's super common in fairy tales, which like sets the tone for mindsets down the line because so many people are exposed to fairy tales as kids, especially because of Disney and like how accessible and popular those movies are. And as, as we mentioned earlier, I did just turn in a research paper for my English class on a very similar topic. So I can speak to this a bit specific to fairy tales. But like, as one of the, the sources that I found, like one of the scholarly sources I found was saying, uh, the messaging that we get in childhood can be like really hard to unstick. It's foundational to the brain architecture. So the prevalence of this trope in fairy tales in particular primes us to be like less wary and opposed to it in the media that we Mm. consume later in life and in actual life. And I think, I think worryingly, these characters essentially orbit the male characters. And in the case of fairy tales, they rarely have female friends or real support systems, which from what I've heard of Fifty Shades and also Twilight is also applicable to uh, Bella and Anna. Um, They don't Mm. really have female friends. And I think Christian Grey actually cuts off Anna from her friends 
it's strange. I've never read it, but like because the characters really orbit the male, the female characters orbit the male characters. We don't see much of what like they who they are or what womanhood is to them or what it could be when it's not related to a man. And then I don't know. I think that ties back to like gender roles and performance that we were talking about earlier. Cause like when the female character arcs and roles are so predictable and common and we're often exposed to them so young that we internalize them as like how women should be. And therefore how like we as women should perform our femininity and our womanhood or like, like for people who aren't women, like how the women they're interacting with are going to be like, it sets up an expectation like just like really young and then it's reinforced and I think it's very hard to unlearn. Wow, yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree. Mm. Well, that wraps up that chapter and wraps up our episode and I am just so thrilled Satari, you are so brilliant and so amazing. Thank you. Um so as we as we bring it to the to a close, what would you say is one of your main takeaways? from the book? Well, I'm, I mean, from the book in general, I think like Roxane Gay's media analysis, like literary analysis, it it resonated with me before high school and it's resonating with me now. I Mm. think that this is sort of reinforcing the, um, I think good habits I've fallen into because of this book. And I think that it's, it's really valuable. And then also your point about how like none of us are free until all of us are free has really stuck with me like this whole conversation. And I think that it's it's such a strong motivator to keep working until everyone is better off. So yeah, thank you so much for that. And thank you for having me. This has been really cool. Well, thank you again. I've so enjoyed our conversation and I yeah, I, I think you're incredible and I wish you all the best in thank you um, as you're launching into adulthood Satare Uh, (laughs) thank you congratulations yeah I guess I would I want to just say for one takeaway for me that just popped into my mind is that Roxanne Gay ends her TED talk I think the same way she ends the the book and she she's talking about kind of the different ways that she feels like she doesn't do feminism perfectly the way she wants to and that she you know is a flawed person but she says I'd rather be a bad feminist than no feminist at all mm-hmm. and I I really loved that line so we'll let that stand as as our the final word for this episode in our next episode we will be discussing another classic text written the same year in 2014 it's rebecca solnit's famous essay men explain things to me this essay is available in its entirety online for free actually it's a really famous essay but i bought it i bought a, a little book that includes that essay and then some of rebecca solnit's other works it's just in this neat little anthology it's really easy to find easy to read, really interesting. It brings up really important and relevant points. And I'll be discussing the book next week with my dear friend, Malia Morris, whom listeners will remember from our very first episode, The Chalice and the Blade. So read this quick, sharp little essay online or in print, and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.